Let's open up Acts chapter 13, read from God's word this morning. We'll pray and dive into our teaching. Acts chapter 13, this is the word of God. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mananaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Cyprus was an island just off the coast in the Mediterranean, just off the coast of what's modern-day Palestine and Israel. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that was the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Jesus, before you left us, you made a promise, a promise to send your spirit, the comforter. You said, I still have many things to say to you, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come this morning. Jesus, we need your spirit of truth, your spirit of power, your Holy Spirit to guide us this morning in this teaching, because we believe in these words, we have the words of life. So now we ask you, Holy Spirit, our comforter, counselor, keeper, would you lead us this morning through the scriptures? We ask that you would help us to learn, give us hope, and focus our minds and our eyes on Jesus. We ask simply that you would turn our darkness, the darkness because of sin, into light. And we ask this, Jesus our King, because you reign and rule as we speak. And we ask this all in your mighty and powerful name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be familiar with a man by the name of Rico Tice. Rico Tice is actually the creator of Christianity Explored. If you don't know him, that's fine. But Rico was a former minister in the Church of England. He studied at Oxford College. He, he actually played rugby for the school. And during his sophomore year, 
He had a tape of a Bible study he led because he wanted to be a minister. So he was, you know, starting out in ministry. He had this videotape of an evangelistic message that he had shared, and he wanted to share that video with members of his rugby team. So he gave it to his friend, Ed. Ed watched the video. He was impressed. He was kind of struck by the teaching. So he decided, I'm going to show this video to the whole rugby team. It is a very evangelistic message, very explicit about the message of Jesus. Two phrases in particular stood out. The first was, either Jesus pays the penalty for your sins eternally by his death on the cross, or you'll have to pay the penalty for your sins eternally. Either Jesus frees you from the power of sin in your life by his powerful resurrection, or you will be enslaved to the power of sin in your life leading to your own eternal death. Following the video, there was a, another rugby player. His name was Dave. He was actually the captain of the team. After watching the video, he said, Rico is not my friend. And to all the friends, you know, who are watching this video, they responded. They said, you're overreacting. Like, it's just such an over-exaggeration. Of course he's your friend. Everyone loves Rico. His name is Rico. How could you hate a guy named Rico? But Dave replied, if that's what Rico really believes, the fact he said nothing told me nothing about it for the last 18 months I've known him, means Rico doesn't love me. If Christians are about love, then why would he not tell me something that was so important? No, Rico's not my friend. You know, one of the unique features of the early church, the church in the first century, was just how vocal the church was, how vocal Christians were about the message of Jesus. They actually had a name for their message. They called it the gospel, the good news, the good news of God giving us his son to die for our sins, to forgive humanity trapped in sin and subject to destruction, if only we would believe it. And because of how vocal these earliest Christians were, how vocal they were, Christianity spread rapidly. You realize in the year 30 AD, that was the year of Jesus' death, his resurrection, and his ascension. In that year, the Christian population in the Roman population of the Roman Empire was 0.0017%. That's it. By the mid-40s AD, which is where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 13, by that time, Christians had grown to 0.013% of the Roman Empire. That might not seem like rapid spread to you, but you have to realize this, that that's a 40% growth rate decade after decade after decade, a trend that would continue for over 300 years, every decade growing by 40%, so that by the year 350 AD, it's estimated that Jesus' followers made up over 55% of the Roman population in just three centuries. That's rapid spread from a fraction to predominance in the greatest empire that the world's ever known. Rodney Stark, he's a sociologist at the University of Washington. He put it this way, saying, the primary means of the church's growth in its infancy, when it was just a fledgling church to begin with, 
was through the united and motivated efforts of the growing number of believers who invited their friends, relatives, and neighbors in sharing the good news. In other words, the reason Christians, the reason the church grew so rapidly and spread so quickly was because the church was vocal. It's quite unique, too, because you realize the Roman Empire, it was polytheist. They believed in hundreds of gods, all of which oversaw different parts of life or different areas, different regions. There was Juno, who was the god of fertility and marriage. You only worshipped Juno if you wanted a male child or you wanted a spouse. Or there was Apollo, the god of agriculture. You worshipped and served Apollo if you wanted to avert a famine or a drought or you wanted a good yield of your harvest. You worshipped Neptune if you were traveling and working by sea. You worshipped Mars if you went out to battle and you wanted the protection of the gods. You worshipped this god because you lived here. You worshipped that god because you lived there. Nobody vocally insisted you have to worship Jupiter. You must worship and believe in Ceres. But then there were Christians who were vocal, adamant, unique in the midst of polytheists, telling friends, relatives, neighbors, preaching, teaching, evangelizing, insisting everyone everywhere believe the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the God who has saved humanity from a humanity trapped in the destruction of their own sins. It was utterly unique. If a person would only believe in him. And, and this is just how Jesus said it would go. Remember at the beginning of the book of Acts, the beginning of this book written by Luke, he tells us the last words that Jesus had for his church, the last words on the lips of the master himself. He says, you, church, my apostles, will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Vocal, telling others about me. That's what a witness does. And you will do this in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and ultimately, you will carry this message to the ends of the earth. And now we're in Acts chapter 13. It's the year 46 AD. And we see, verse 1, the message of Jesus has spread. It's out there. And it's spread more than 300 miles north of where it started in Jerusalem into the third largest city in the Roman Empire, a city known as Antioch. And from everything we can see, the message is thriving. In verse 1, we read that there were in the church at Antioch, again, this is the third largest imperial city. In Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. This one church has five resident teachers and prophets because there's such a need to spread the message. And Luke goes on and names them. Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and of course, Saul, who we also know as Paul the Apostle. Here we are a little over a decade, just past 10 years of the church's inception and the message, the witness of the church of Jesus has already spread just as Jesus has said. It spread beyond Jerusalem. It spread beyond Judea. It spread past Samaria. In just 13 years, the gospel now blankets close to 20,000 square miles. 
The only place left for this message to go is to the ends of the earth. You see, in Antioch, you're, you're talking about the far north of modern-day Syria and the far southeast of modern-day Turkey. The only place for it to go is west into the Roman Greek-speaking world. That's the only place it has left to go, to the ends of the earth, just as Jesus said. So, we read verse 2, Jesus speaks to this church. We read, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. This is a sign of ordination, a sign of being set apart, a sign of, a, a sign of being sent out on mission or ministry to God. And they were sent off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, this island just off the coast in the Mediterranean. This is the first instance of a planned overseas, you can call it an international mission, carried out by a particular church through a deliberate church decision led by the Holy Spirit. And I find this fascinating. Notice what these men, Paul and Barnabas, are set apart for. Notice what they do on this mission. Verse 5, we read that when they arrived at Salamis, this is on the far east of the island, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And we also read they had John, John Mark, to assist them. They proclaimed the word of God. They continued to be vocal. They continued to spread the message of Jesus, preaching, teaching, sharing, evangelizing, insisting everyone everywhere believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's their mission, to witness to Jesus, share his good news, even to the ends of the earth. And the reason that I find this so interesting is because when we think of missions today, in our kind of 21st century American context, what we have the tendency to do is to categorize every good thing that the church does under the category of missions. So we say missions, and we put under that umbrella everything, every good thing that the church does in the name of Jesus. So we speak of medical mission trips, or we will talk about humanitarian mission trips or service and relief efforts as mission, or we refer to building homes in impoverished areas as our mission, or providing a food pantry as the mission of the church. When we speak of mission, we classify every good thing that we do under this umbrella as the mission. The tendency is encapsulated in that common phrase. You probably heard it before. It comes from St. Francis of Assisi. He says, share the gospel with everyone. If necessary, use words. Meaning, do good things, do good efforts, do good works, but if necessary, then use your words. In other words, share the gospel by just kind of doing good stuff. You don't have to be vocal. And we like that, of course, because we live in a culture that already says actions speak louder than words. And we say things like nobody wants to be preached at. Who here likes to be preached at? Why are you here? <laughs> We want to be the kind of people, though, and, and we do want to be these kind of people who build houses. We want to be those kind of people, of course. We want to serve the poor. We want to provide humanitarian relief and, and tangibly, physically love others. Those are good things, to be sure. But mission throughout the New Testament and everywhere in Acts always involves proclamation 
words, vocal, preaching, teaching, evangelizing, telling others who do not already know the good news of Jesus, the only God able to save humanity trapped in sin and subject to eternal judgment. That is what Jesus, by his spirit, set Paul and Barnabas aside for. That's what the Holy Spirit of the church of Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas out to do. That was the mission, to witness to Jesus throughout Cyrene, throughout the Mediterranean world, throughout the Greek-speaking world, into all the earth. And now, to be sure, just re-emphasize this, that's not to say that humanitarian work or medical efforts or relief efforts, it's not to say those efforts are wrong or bad. Absolutely not. Those are good. We want to be those kind of people. In fact, we do short-term mission trips and service projects down in Guatemala with an organization called Global Che, which means community health evangelism. We go and build water systems in areas that don't have access to clean water, but tied to it is evangelism. Building a well is great, but it's not enough in order to accomplish the mission Jesus gave. We must share. We must be vocal. And because this is the big difference, and we have to realize this, humanitarian relief and physical service can never, on their own, pay the penalty and judgment for a person's sin. They can't. They can never free a person from the power of sin and darkness and death. The only thing that can do that is belief in Jesus through the gospel. That alone must be shared, it must be believed, it must be embraced. Only belief in the gospel can save a person eternally. That's it. The vocal teaching of Christians is what made this infant church utterly, utterly unique. It's what moved the church from fraction to predominance, you see. It was the primary means of the church's growth, witnessing, sharing the message of Jesus. There's a man by the name of J. Gresham Machen, and he was a pastor back in the 1930s, 1920s. And in 1933, he was asked a question because the church had kind of seen its way through the Great Depression, as the entire United States had. And he was asked this question by a columnist, what is the church's responsibility in this new age following the Great Depression? What should the church do now that everything has changed? And Machen's response is utterly fascinating. He says, quote, the responsibility of the church in this new age is the same as its responsibility in every age. The depression hasn't changed that. The responsibility of the church is to testify to this world that it is lost in sin. That the span of human life, no, the span of human history is an infinitesimal island in the awful depths of eternity. And there is a mysterious, holy, living God, creator of all, upholder of all, infinitely beyond all. And he has revealed himself to us in his word and offered us free forgiveness with himself through the death of his eternal son, Jesus Christ. It's the church's responsibility to testify that there is no other salvation for individuals or for nations other than Jesus, and that this salvation is full 
and free. And whoever possesses it has for himself a treasure, a treasure that makes all the kingdoms of earth, no, all the wonders of the starry heavens look like the dust of the streets. He said it's an unpopular message, an impractical message, we're told, with all the other issues and causes we can take on. But it's the message of the Christian church. It's the message of Jesus himself. If we neglect it, we will destroy ourselves. If we heed it, we will have life now and into eternity. You know, there's great church partners that we partner with, many of them are in the United Kingdom. And if you know anything about the United Kingdom, they went the opposite direction, right? They went from fraction to predominance, but then over the last 200 years, they went from predominance to fraction, where now less than 2% of the population says that they're evangelical Christians. And if you were to ask some of these church planters, like, like I have, what happened? They're very clear. They say it's obvious, it's simple. We neglected the gospel. And we became more concerned about other things. Good things to be sure, but not saving things. One church planter put it this way. He said, the first generation believed the gospel. The second generation assumed the gospel and went on to other things. That meant the third generation forgot the gospel. And by the fourth generation, the gospel was lost. The message of Jesus, the gospel proclaimed is the mission Jesus gave us. It is the mission Paul and Barnabas were set apart for. It's the mission that they were set apart to undertake, to be witnesses, not just in their actions, as good as those were, but with their words to be vocal about this treasure, the treasure of free forgiveness and salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus for our sins. And you can take this for you know, what it's worth. This is just my two cents, okay? But just two observations. Number one, could it be that the reason we've seen such a steep decline in Christianity throughout the last 60 years in the United States of America, could it be the result in part of this way of thinking that says we can share the gospel but not actually use words? Or that we can witness to Jesus but not actually speak of him? Or do the mission and not be vocal? Number two, could it be that people are disinterested in Christianity because they, they can't distinguish our mission from the mission of the myriad of good organizations that we see all around us? After all, there are many great, good, helpful secular organizations that devote their time to building houses and social services and poverty alleviation and medical care and, and mental health services. And if people believe, well, that's good, and then the mission of the church is to do those things, and they don't see anything distinctive, nothing different about the church from those organizations, I can understand why they'd say, well, why do we need to go to church then? I don't need God to be a good person. Look at all these people who don't believe in God, and they're good people. What makes the church unique is we have Jesus. We have the gospel, a saving message. That's what distinguishes us from anybody else. Think about it, Deer Creek. There, there are dozens of organizations in the greater metro area that will contribute toward humanitarian services, but none of those organizations will be vocal about Jesus. 
There's only one organization that will do that. And it's the church of Jesus Christ. Mission throughout the New Testament, throughout Acts, always involves proclamation. It involves words, vocal preaching, teaching, treasuring Jesus, the good news of Jesus who sacrificed himself for us so we can be freed from sin. We will either neglect that and destroy ourselves or we will heed it and live, have life both now and into eternity. You see in verse 6 too, we see Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, they're sharing the message of Jesus as they're going along the southern coast of Cyprus. They're going from east and traveling along to the west. And this message is spreading, and it's spread up to the highest sectors of society. There's a proconsul. His name is Sergius Paulus. And he's heard about Christianity because it's spread. And he summons Paul and Barnabas. He wants to hear their teaching. He wants to hear the gospel. He's interested in knowing more, but there's a problem. There's a magician whose name is Elemis also known as Bar-Jesus, which just means son of Jesus, right? Bar means son, Jesus means, well, Jesus. And you have to realize Jesus is not Jesus of Nazareth as he's Jesus, the son of the Christ. It's not what he's saying. He's, Jesus was a common name for the time. If you think about it today, Jesus would have been, you know, less popular than John, but more popular than Doug. Okay, it would have been like Eric, Okay, you go to a, a dinner party, there's an Eric there. That was like Jesus. <laughs> this man, bar Jesus or Elemis, he tries to oppose the message. In verse 8, the word of God is spreading. Then, verse 8, we read, but Elemis, the magician, we've mentioned this before, when the Bible is saying good things are happening, but so-and-so, it's not a good sign. Everyone did well on the exam, but Daniel. Everyone had their passport, but Daniel. Everyone had a date to homecoming, but Daniel. No wonder I need so much counseling, right? But isn't good. So, but Elemis, the magician, opposed them. And notice what he's doing. Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Nobody knows exactly what Elemis did here because this is the only mention of it. But what we do know is that the church in every age today, and even in the earliest stages of the church here, we know the church has always faced false teachers. It's always been a problem. False teachers who seek to persuade others who are otherwise sincere, un otherwise uncertain, otherwise receptive to the message of Jesus, and, and they seek to turn them away from the faith. People who take the plain things that the Bible says and, you know, obscures them. And makes them mysterious and, you know, myopic. People who take the truth of the gospel and they substitute lies. Or even worse, they substitute half-truths because now they sound plausible. Or people who take God's word and in order to make it more palatable for our culture, what they'll do is they'll, you know, take kind of like a Sharpie marker and they'll say, well, that doesn't really relate to what we're dealing with today. Or people who add extraneous teachings to the message of Jesus. These have always existed. Paul, in later writings, writing to his friend Timothy, said this very explicitly. He said, but understand this, Timothy, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, 
slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treachering, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness, they say they're Christians, right? But denying its power. Avoid such people, Timothy. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never, never able to arrive at the truth. That's a sign of a false teacher. They'll, they'll say, I'm just asking questions. I'm, not, I'm just trying to explore more. But they never arrive at the truth. It's always just questions that undermine the plain readings of Scripture. They're just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far for their folly will be plain to all as it was of those two men. Janus and Jambres, if you remember, when they opposed Moses, the ground opened up beneath them and they fell to their own destruction. Paul's saying that's exactly what false teachers are like. You're going to notice the fruit of their teaching and they're ultimately going to destroy themselves by their teaching. Jesus' brother Jude also wrote about false teachers. He said, Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, said to a church, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. They take the plain things of the gospel and they're going to make them obscure. So much so that in so doing, they will deny the master who died for them. They're going to deny Jesus, even though they say they aren't denying Jesus. There was Arius in the fourth century, he taught saying, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but he said, Jesus is not the eternal son of God. He's not God in the flesh. Jesus is a created being. He's, he's lesser than God, but a little bit greater than humans. And he taught that, you know, Jesus is just kind of a moral, spiritual example to live by, not a God who takes on flesh to save people from their sins. By the way, avoiding the plain teachings of Scripture, the plain teachings of John, who, who knew Jesus personally, who said, speaking of Jesus, the Word, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. you got to do some serious grammatical gymnastics to get around the Word was God and say, the Word was not God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Arius made the plain things obscure. No, Jesus is just a great man, not God. He's a creature. He's kind of an in-between. And you had Pelagius in the 5th century. Pelagius taught that humans, are, that we're basically good people. You know, we make mistakes now and again, but we're, we're basically good he taught the lie. Because we're basically good, we don't really need Jesus. We don't need his grace. We don't need his sacrifice for sins to save us from 
our destruction. Instead, if you live a good life and do what you can, if you live in a good way by God's moral precepts, then you can go to heaven. Never mind the plain things like the Apostle Paul who said, hey, when it comes to doing the moral precepts of God, he said, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You've got to be a pretty distorted teacher to take, hey, the law actually shows us our sin and shows us that we're condemned, and then say, hey, by doing it well enough, you, you can be okay. Then he goes on to say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. God sent himself, his own son, Jesus, to die for our sins, to save us because we could not save ourselves. Countless teachers still around today teach that there are many paths to God. They teach the lie. Everyone's on their own spiritual journey. They just need to follow the path that they're on. In the end, all roads lead to heaven. If Jesus were here, he would surely teach that as well. Well, if that's what Jesus taught, man, did his disciples get it wrong? Because they're going around the Mediterranean world into all the earth saying, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by humanity, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Still other teachers who take the sins that are pervasive in our culture and they teach those sins, they're, they're actually good. They're actually blessed by God. Never mind what God said then. We can't rely on what God said then. We have to kind of go on our best judgment now. They're actually blessed by God. These are teachings around human sexuality. When people teach certain things about wealth and prosperity. There are some people who take eternal life, which Jesus spoke explicitly about, and they just say, those aren't real. There's not a real heaven. There's not a real hell. No, those are just metaphors of like, you know, the, the real broken experience we have here, that's hell. Or the joy that we feel in the morning when we see the sunrise, that's heaven, that's heaven on earth. Teachings like one book that said, you know, Christianity, it's, it's like a brick wall. And you can just take certain bricks out, bricks like, you know, the virgin birth of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus, and, and the, the brick wall still stands. As if God, as if Jesus, as if the master himself didn't say clearly otherwise. And Elymas is no different. He's a false prophet. He's like false teachers, taking the plain things and obscuring them, taking the light, the clear, and making them dark, making them mysterious. And in the process, he's denying the master, Jesus himself. And look how Paul describes what Elymas is doing. He doesn't pull any punches here. Doesn't pull any punches at all. Verse 9, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. You see, you see the irony here, right? His name is Bar Jesus, son of Jesus. He's like, You're obviously not a son of Jesus. No, you're a son of Jesus' enemy. You are a son of the devil. You are opposing God. You son of the devil, devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? 
Again, because that's what false teachers, false prophets do. They take the plain, they make it obscure. They take the light, they make it dark. And like Paul says here, they take the straight path that God has revealed in his scriptures and they make it crooked. They, they twist it and they bend it so that people get confused. Have you ever met those kinds of teachers who... The Bible says something so clearly, but they say, yeah, but you really got to understand like the philosophical context during the time and the nuance behind the Greek here. And you have to realize this and that. And they use context not to make something more clear, but to obscure the plain meaning of the teaching. That's what he's talking about. That was Elemis. He says, you're taking the straight things and you're making them crooked, not to bring light, but to bring darkness, to lead people astray. And this expression, this rebuke by Paul would have been familiar to Elemis because it was actually verbatim the same rebuke that the prophet Micah issued to the leaders of Israel 600 years before. In that prophecy, Micah said, hear you heads of Jacob, talking about the leaders of the people during the time, hear you heads of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. It's not for you to know justice. You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and fillet their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like a meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight." who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of a wooded height. Paul's saying, Elemas, you are just like those leaders of Israel 600 years before. You're like the false prophets, the false priests, the false leaders who led God's people astray. You say you're for God. You claim to be a true prophet and teacher. You are nothing more than the son of the evil one. You lead people into judgment just like they did. It was because of those false teachers and prophets who brought destruction on Zion and on Jerusalem. You're just like them 600 years after. You take the path that leads to God and you make it crooked, you make it jagged, and you obscure what God plainly teaches. You are a son of all villainy. Will nothing stop you? Whew. We can bristle at this language. I... This rebuke, when it comes to false teaching, we can almost be exceedingly accommodating, almost excessively accommodating. You know, yeah, well, I don't personally agree, but I, I believe their heart's in the right place. I believe they're kind. I don't personally agree with their teaching, but they're sincere. I think they're trying to love others and do their best. Friends, realize even the nicest, kindest, most sincere person in the world can deserve a rebuke. Even the most sincere teacher can be sincerely leading other people astray. No matter how kind or nice a person may be, when someone is intentionally, deceitfully, unrighteously teaching falsehood and opposing the message of Jesus, whether implicitly or explicitly, this language is necessary. As one commentator put it, any true teacher of the Bible of Scripture ought to have two voices. 
one for gathering the sheep and calling them in, and one for driving away the wolves who seek to devour. Realize here, too, Elemis, he's not mistaken. Okay, Elemis is not just misspoken or said something incorrect out of lack of information. We, we all know what it's like to be mistaken, don't we? Just ask my wife, Hannah. When we get in a fight, she's mistaken all the time, right? She knows what it's like to be wrong. <laughs> she's not here to defend herself, right? That's not Elemis. He's not mistaken. He's intentionally leading Sergius Paulus away from the message of the truth, intentionally, deceitfully, unrighteously trying to dissuade this Roman governor from the message of Jesus, obscuring what is plain, falsifying what's true, darkening what's light. He's a son of the devil, not a son of Jesus. And the consequence of Elemis's false teaching is stark. God, through Paul, brings a fitting judgment. Paul, still speaking, says, and now, verse 11, and now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. It's, it's this idea of being against you. Now, you're opposing me. I'm going to oppose you. The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind, unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. This was a fitting judgment. It was a temporary judgment, to be sure. But here's a man obscuring God's plain message by making straight paths crooked. And he's a man who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And as a consequence, he himself is made devoid of light and darkened. Is a temporary judgment to be sure? He, he regained his sight because God wanted him to know there's still time to repent. There's still time to turn. There's still time to change your teaching. But a temporary judgment nonetheless. And we see ultimately his attempts to obscure and divert and to dissuade Sergius Paulus fail because the word of God never returns void. Verse 12, we read that the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Just as it had in Jerusalem, just as it had in Judea, just as it went past Samaria, now as the church begins to reach the ends of the earth, the vocal witness of Jesus, his life, his sacrificial death, his powerful resurrection proclaimed this utterly unique message of Jesus saves Sergius Paulus. Just think, too. When people heard about this message going forward, when people heard about this missionary endeavor, just imagine how foolish they would have thought this message was or just how foolish this whole endeavor would have been. Why do these Christians insist that everyone everywhere believe in this gospel? Just live and let live for Pete's sake. If people want to believe in their own God, then fine. Nobody's going to believe you anyway. Go out. It's a fool's errand. But as C.S. Lewis put it, when the world is run, running toward a cliff, he who's running in the opposite direction appears to have lost his mind. And it's these foolish men with this foolish message about a foolish cross and a foolish savior who couldn't even save himself from a Roman execution. It's that foolishness that made the church once a fraction become the predominant religion of an empire in less than 300 years, and it continues to do so today. After all, it was Paul who would eventually say, the message of the cross 
is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God to salvation. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the message that you gave us, your message, which is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. The message that takes sinners like us who are trapped, who are burdened, who are heavy laden, who sin against you, who are in darkness, and it's this message that brings us into your marvelous light where we get to treasure you and have you as our Savior, our Lord, our friend. We believe, Jesus, that you became sin for us so that through your sacrifice, through your death, we might become the righteousness of God. We might be forgiven. And we believe that you rose again from the dead. You live as we speak, and you're hearing our prayer even now. You're interceding for us. You're the only mediator between God and man, the only one who can save us from our sin and the judgment that we deserve. And Jesus, as we come to this communion meal, this one that you gave us, this one that reminds us again of just how great a salvation we have in you, we ask that you would use this, this meal, God, to remind us of your great love for us, you, the one who gave and sacrificed yourself. And we pray, God, that you would use this meal just as you would use this message to change us and to help us to serve you and love you all the more. In your name we pray, amen.